from Kirkco Media. So what you gonna do about it? Imagine sending thousands of dollars to a criminal because of a fake email that looked like it came from someone you trust. It's a cybercrime that tends to get a rather unhelpful response when reported to your local police. Sorry, ma'am. Sucks to be you. They can target you, me, or our whole country. When we think about the need to repair our country's infrastructure, we think about roads and bridges, airports. But there's another kind of infrastructure we rely on even more. Every day, in fact. Each of us depends on it. Banks and Wall Street, our electric grid, the gas companies, the U.S. government couldn't even function without it. The Army and Navy and the Air Force, Marines couldn't defend us without it. Of course, I'm talking about America's digital infrastructure. You remember the attack on Sony Pictures a few years ago. And no doubt you're aware of the recent ransomware attack on Colonial Petroleum's pipeline. It triggered a fuel shortage on the East Coast. And of course, the granddaddy of all hacks through a company called SolarWinds is said that Russia attacked 18,000 U.S. companies and some of America's most sensitive agencies, including the National Security Agency and the Department of Treasury. What is really at risk here? Could a cyber attack bring the nation's economy to a halt? Our guest today wrote the book on the subject. Not sure we could ever have a more important episode of politics. Meet me in the middle. I'm Bill Curtis. And once again, my co-host is Jane Albrecht. She's an international trade attorney who fought for U.S. economic and business interests to high-level government officials overseas. She's a member of the U.S. Supreme Court Bar, and she's also been involved with several U.S. presidential campaigns. Welcome, Jane. Nice to have you. Always good to be here. And welcome, David. And our special, somewhat scary guest, David Holtzman. As CTO of Network Solutions, he oversaw the growth of the commercial Internet from 500,000 to the first 20 million domain names. Frankly, he has got an exhausting resume. A cryptographer, a Russian linguist, submariner with the U.S. Naval Security Group. David was a fellow at Amazon. He advised numerous high-tech startups, and he even served as a senior security advisor to General Wesley Clark's 2004 presidential campaign. Oh, and Bill Clinton's Y2K committee. He's been interviewed by pretty much every major news media you can think of. And, oh yeah, he climbed mountains, he's gone on horse treks in Mongolia, dog sledding in Lapland, and he's even worked underwater in submarines in the field of cyber intelligence. No one ever called him lazy. Welcome, David. Nice to have you here. Thank you. Happy to be here. You climbed Kilimanjaro, really? Uh, did you find what you were looking for up there? I was in my mid-50s when I did it, and I was so happy, and I was going to go down, I was going to call these people, because I didn't think I was going to survive. And the guy right after me came down, he had no feet, and he had actually gotten up and down faster than me with no feet, and he was two years older than me. <laughs> so I shut up. So getting down to our subject, the other day, you broke down three reasons why people and countries get hacked. Can you outline this for us? Yeah, and there's also a time thing. Things have evolved over the last 20, 30 years. So hacking originally started as computer scientists playing jokes on other computer scientists. So the very first computer virus was done in an academic lab that was called the Cookie Monster virus. And it would go on somebody's computer and it would start saying, I want a cookie. And it wouldn't go away until you hit the key. And that was a cookie. And then it would come back an hour later and say, give me cookie. It was like that level of stuff. And then the first commercial one was called the Pakistani brain virus. 
And this happened in, in Islamabad. Two brothers did it, first real computer attack, and then they got caught because they were so worried someone would steal their software, they put a copyright notice in the virus. And even then, it took a couple of weeks to find them because no one had seen it before. We're now at a point where we see hacks happening for really three reasons. One is it's about money. It's ransomware. It's a way of extorting money from somebody. It's a big business. The second reason is it's intelligence collection. So that's a lot of what China does, for instance. And it's a way of getting high-tech information, trade information, embarrassing information, just information. That's fundamentally what intelligence agencies do. And this is just a good way of getting it. The third thing, and we've only seen a little bit of this, is it can be an actual act of war. And there's only been a couple of cases, most of them involving Russia and a few involving us. But in the future, five years, 10 years, all warfare will have a significant cyber component. So we all lived through recently the Colonial Petroleum pipeline hack. How do we know who did it and who actually turned off the gas? Well, the company turned off their own gas. Really? From what I understand, it was the billing back office system. So it wasn't affecting the flow of gas. It was affecting their ability to get paid for the flow of gas. And they were concerned that the hack would migrate from that system to another system, or they were concerned they weren't going to get paid for the gas. So regardless, they turned off the pipeline. And then the media picked it up, it blew up, and you guys are on the West Coast, I'm on the East Coast. I'm not going anywhere this week because I can't get gas in my tank. It's still that bad in Washington, D.C.? Not a single gas station as of yesterday was open in D.C. Oh, my God. So wait a minute, that wasn't because of the hack itself? No, it was panic buying. So Colonial turned it back on again in a day or two. I don't remember the exact time. But there's an East Coast thing in New York or D.C. The meteorologists predict a big snowstorm. Everybody goes to the grocery store, wipes out all the toilet paper, the water, the milk, the bread. It's like that. It's panic buying. Where does that fit in your list of hacks where actually sometimes it's not the hack that screws us up, but we, we end up panicking ourselves and creating our own monster? Yeah, that's a really good point. The fuel shortage is not a hack. It's an indirect social consequence of the hack. All the hack did, from my understanding, this is a, a normal ransomware hack. The organization that did it calls themselves DarkSide. They're Russian programmers, but they're not, as far as I know, sanctioned by the government of Russia. They hit 57 companies last year, something like that, including Toshiba a couple of months ago. This is their business model. They claimed they had no idea this was going to be an outcome. And they just saw Colonial as just another company who had really probably pretty crappy security. So they hit their system, locked it up, said, if you want your system unlocked, you need to give us so much money. The Colonial execs perhaps panicked, overreacted, that apparently they did pay and they paid a $5 million ransom, although they haven't completely acknowledged that. Did they pay it on Bitcoin? Do you know? I'm sure they did. So you actually have somebody who is admitting to the hack, who may or may not be working at the instruction of Putin or the Kremlin. How is there no accountability? How is there no penalty? How is there no process from here? That's a good question, too, because it brings up a lot of ancillary questions. And one is... What's the jurisdiction with a cyber attack? So in this particular case, what I know is the hackers were in Russia or near Russia 
They were mostly Russians, but the hack was perpetrated from a server in New York State. So they moved the software onto a cloud service that they bought in New York, and they used that as the jumping point to attack Colonial and probably other companies. Well, what about the server in New York? Can't you identify companies like DarkSide and say you shouldn't be selling to people like that? Yeah, they did. They got shut down within a day. Some federal agency shut them down and tried to suck some of the Bitcoin money back. But the problem is the world of international corporations is a very murky world, as you know, Jane. Yeah. It's that way for a reason, because legitimate business people like to have shell companies and offshore trusts. Look at the Panama Papers. I mean, that was a great example of all these shells within shells within shells within shells. So the hackers do something similar. So you get some company that's incorporated in New York with a couple of New Yorkers as the executives, and they want to open up an account with an ISP, wherever it was, Schenectady or something. They let them have it. Why wouldn't they? So the only reason they wouldn't is because somebody complains. And that's what usually happens. What happens is white hat programmers, companies like FireEye, which is a counter espionage. What's a white hat programmer? So there's two kinds of hackers. There's white hat and black hat. And that comes from the cowboy movies. Uh, okay. So I would argue I'm probably a white hat. A white hat is somebody who goes on shows and talks about things and uses their skills to help organizations, companies, or people. Black hats are basically criminals. So let's hop into a couple of more hacks, and then I'm going to ask you for some lessons learned. Let's go to the D.C. Police Department was hacked, and apparently even identity of street informants was exposed. Tell us about that hack. So there was a group called Babook. Babook is like DarkSide. They're a ransomware organization. And they attacked the D.C. Police Department. And this is really common, unfortunately. The city of Baltimore was hit last year in the same way. Except instead of locking up the files, they stole the files. So we don't know how many files, but well, actually we do because they dumped it all on the internet three days ago. So there was about 250 gigabytes, 200 gigabytes and they asked for a certain amount of money, millions. DC offered like 100000 or so. The ransomware guy said, okay, the heck with this. You can negotiate? You can always negotiate. Good to know. There's a whole bunch of people, and their job now is cyber ransomware negotiator. Many of them work for insurance companies. Some of them work for intelligence agencies or investigative agencies. Everything's negotiable. If they already took the information they stole and made it public, then what's the point of paying any ransom? You don't, but the next guy does. What do you mean the next guy? So organized crime. When they try to collect money off somebody and the guy doesn't pay him, they break his arms, they do it so his neighbor pays next time. It's setting a precedent. Got it. Let's hop over to the granddaddy, shall we, David? The SolarWinds hack, which has widely been attributed to Russia's SVR intelligence agency. Russia's denied that, of course. And they said it was Western powers who hacked solar winds. I'm going to ask you to tell us what they mean by, did we hack ourselves or what do they mean by that? But tell us about that hack and some lessons learned there. Okay, well, let me start with my opinion and then I'll give you what I know of the facts. So my opinion is that this is definitely a Russian operation. I'm virtually certain of it. And every intelligence person I've talked to believes the same thing. Anything in particular that makes you so sure? Because it was done really professionally. They used a zero-day exploit that people hadn't seen. Most hacks are using somebody else's tools. 
It's like you're a cat burglar, but you can't afford your own pry bar, so you borrow it from a friend. That's how most hackers work. These guys innovated this stuff. There was a new element to this, fairly clever. It was very precise, and they didn't damage anything. If the SolarWinds hack had been a ransomware hack, I was trying to calculate this this morning, it would have been worth at least $10 billion. You listed some of the organizations and companies that got hit. I know it was 425 of the Fortune 500, all 10 major U.S. telecommunications companies, all five U.S. accounting firms, plus every branch of the military. So if these guys wanted to make money, there was money to be made. They never asked for a ransom. Going back to my earlier compartmentation of the reasons one does this, if they're not asking for money and they're not declaring war, they're collecting information. Who would want to collect that information? Russia, China, somebody else. You're kind of deducting because of the level of sophistication that it was likely one of those powers. It wasn't some really smart kid in the basement someplace. That's an interesting word, deduction. It's very rare that a big hack is actually detected. When I say detected, I'm thinking of Columbo. They very rarely are able to investigate it. You know, it's like on TV, you see these police procedurals and the CSI guys always solve crimes. That very rarely happens in, in regular life. Cyber stuff's like that too. So you can deduce it, but unless these people are complete idiots, there's no way to track them down because of the way the internet functions. A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co Media. Currently 21 years old, and today I felt like I'm magic read extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my but dream. fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being questioned. going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies. Wonders to whom she should give the second dice. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the ones beauty that are of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in life. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kurtco.com/slash a moment of your time. So do we have a way to track what has been stolen, especially from the Department of Treasury and Homeland Security, Commerce and State? Do we know what information has changed hands? I have no inside information of that. I would speculate from what I've read, probably not. The organization that did it was probably Fancy Bear, which is a sanctioned Russian government hacking group. And we're not talking five guys eating Cheetos. We're talking hundreds of people in more than one laboratory office around Russia. This is part of their government. So it looks like that. It just feels like that. They're like the Green Berets. They're like an outfit of the military. So there's Fancy Bear and Cozy Bear, and there's a couple others. And that's what we call them. I don't think they call themselves APT-28. But the really scary thing in my mind is that they might have left back doors for later. They can put software constructs that can't be discovered somewhere in a system in treasury or whatever, and then later they can exploit that. Like, let's say we went to war with Russia. I mean, not a big nuclear war, but like over the Ukraine or Estonia or something. 
this might be one of the first things we would see in a warfare is all of a sudden these Trojans, Trojan horses is what we call them, that have been installed during this particular hack, the solar winds hack, all of a sudden lights up, comes to life. You know, it's like that TV show, The Americans, you know, where they put the sleepers in place for 20 years and then they activate them. It's exactly like that on the internet. So if if you were managing the technology and security groups in these federal organizations, what would you do to try to eliminate that backdoor issue? I would burn the system to the ground and start over. That's what I was advised earlier with viruses on my computers, that there's some viruses that the only way you can be 100% sure of getting rid of them is to just wipe out your system and install an entire new system. So is that what you're saying? Yeah. So back years and years ago, when I worked for NSA, we were putting a new embassy building up in Moscow, and this was the Soviet Mm -hmm. Union at the time. And then it came to light that the Soviets had embedded microphones into the concrete. When they poured the concrete, the building was half done. We tore the building down and started over at a different site with different construction people. What do you see, David, as any culpability on solar winds part? What do they do, first of all? And here was an interesting thing I saw on the internet last night as I was preparing for the show. Apparently, a number of the shareholders cashed in the night before the news of the breach came public. Yeah, I saw that. The CEO, was, I believe, was one of them, but I'm not sure. And the CEO has resigned. Yeah. None of that does us any good. They cashed in the night before it became public, but after they knew about it, right? They weren't involved in it, no. as far as mm-hmm. I could tell. The company knew, but they hadn't announced it. And during that brief period of time, some of the insiders dumped their stock. Let me ask you the other side of this, because it sounds like a lot of really scary hacks that you've described. And I'd love it if I had heard from you a lesson that we learned from these hacks, but it sounds like we're still learning as we go. Can I just ask you the tough question? Sure. What is the U.S. doing? Are we just as guilty or just as sophisticated a set of hackers as Russia or China or Israel? Well, again, this is just my belief. My belief is that we have the best cyber intelligence on an offensive capability basis in the world. Certainly up there with Israel. Israel, Russia, the United States, secondarily China, and a couple of other countries. But remember... Anything that we had would be a weapon that would be equivalent to a hydrogen bomb. It would be highly classified. So as an example, when back in the, in the 60s, we had a program called the, um, the U-2 airplane. That was the Gary Powers thing where he got shot down. That thing was super secret. And the organization that, that ran that was called the NRO or the National Reconnaissance Office. And then they started putting up satellites for 30 years. It was a felony if you even mentioned that that agency existed. Even though powers had been shot down, everybody knew we were putting up spy satellites. Everything about that program was absolutely pitch black classified. So I would assume that anything that was cyber warfare, like somebody can press a button and Putin's iPhone blows up and knocks off his ear. I'm just guessing that we can do that. But if we could do anything like that, that would be pretty classified stuff. And you wouldn't hear about it. The only way you would know would be if a guy like like Snowden, as an example, was a whistleblower. And Snowden did actually reveal a lot of this stuff. So if you look at some of the things Snowden talked about, it was pretty low-level stuff, mostly. Snowden talked about an awful lot of offensive capabilities. 
David, in today's world, do you think things can be kept as confidential as they could back in the 50s and 60s? Well, that's a social question. No, I don't, actually. We've been pretty tough. I mean, when you look back in 2016, 2017, there was that young woman, a military woman who worked at NSA. Her name was, bizarrely enough, Reality Winner. She's the one who exposed some political stuff that I won't go into. She's still in jail. So the penalties are harsh. Mm -hmm. If Snowden were to come back to the United States, I would assume that they would put him in jail and throw away the key. Well, there's one other problem, too, in that Trump, we know publicly Trump revealed information to the Russians. Were there compromises in our intelligence information? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What, what, Jane, what, what, how do, what, what did you say? <laughs> there was that one meeting where Trump gave the Russians, I think it was the Russian ambassador to the U.S. at the time, and their minister of foreign affairs, he gave them information that was highly classified. I think it had to do with intelligence coming from the Israelis. That's documented. And there were other cases where somebody took pictures of Mar-a-Lago and he was sitting with a bunch of, I think it was Japanese businessmen. He had spread documents on the table and they had all kinds of security markings all over it. But he's the president. I mean, he was. The president, all security classification is a pyramid. And the tip of the pyramid is the president of the United States. That's why Jared Kushner got a security clearance when everybody involved in the process said, don't give him one. So he has the right, the legal right to do that. So I guess the concern, and we'll just not know what happened, but the concern is whether during his presidency, a lot of our top intelligence information was compromised with the Russians. I'm sure it was. But that's a political, that's a political statement from both of you. I mean, just for a second, this is called meet me in the middle. So I want to, I want to push back here. Do we have any actual proof that any sensitive information, especially about our cyber capabilities, was passed on to the Russians? No. Let's move on then. You had said the other day, David, that the most powerful in the world of hacking was uh, Russia and the USA. And you also uh, mentioned Israel. I was actually surprised at that. Most good cryptography software or decryption software is Israeli made. When we had an incident several years ago and the FBI needed to break an iPhone, it was a legal issue, and Apple refused to cooperate, they hired an Israeli company who broke it in two days. So these guys are, these guys are good. There are other countries that are good. The Iranians are not that bad. The Pakistanis, shockingly, are not that bad. Great Britain's okay, or United Kingdom's okay, France is okay, Canada's not particularly good. It's about the people and, and the money that they spend in doing it. But the United States, we have a thing called Cyber Command, and Cyber Command is, it's like a military force. There are a lot of people working for Cyber Command. I don't think anybody knows how many. I'm sure there's thousands, maybe even tens of thousands. Interesting. Well, we're going to take a 30-second break, David. When we come back, I want to ask you about an expression you used the other day. You said the words, zero day. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. David, that expression, zero day, what, what was that all about? So this is a technical term that's used to ascribe the value of an exploit. An exploit is like 
an unknown bug that enables someone to hack into something. So there's a huge market for these things. And some of them are not on the dark web. Some of them, there's a company in San Francisco that's a public company that sells these things. So the zero day part refers to the number of days since the company that makes the software found out they had a problem. There's like one day, two day, 10 day, 30 day. The reason they enumerate it that way is because the value of the exploit goes down a lot based on how many days the companies had to work on a fix. Zero day exploits basically mean that the company doesn't even know that this is a problem. So depending on the value of the target, it describes the value of the exploit, the zero day. And there's auction houses that that sell this stuff. So a zero day exploit on a Microsoft product like Windows or Office is maybe $50,000, $75,000. A zero day exploit for an iPhone, last I looked, was over a million and a half dollars. Why is a zero day hack on an iPhone so valuable? Because the iPhone is better protected than any Microsoft product. But why would it mean more money to them? Because it's harder to find because they're scarcer. But how could they make more money off of it is what I'm saying. It's easy to find, make, and buy a Microsoft hack. It's really difficult to find, make, and buy an Apple hack. So you may have like a thousand Microsoft hacks and only two Apple hacks. So it's supply and demand. So the price goes up. Is it safe to assume then that you're saying that if I used Apple products, I'm safer? Yeah, you are. No question about it for now. I mean, that's probably not always going to be true, but it is now. So the uh, the other thing I wanted to point out is just kind of interesting. The number one purchaser of these zero-day exploits is not hackers. It's the United States government. They are by far the number one purchaser of these things, followed by other nation states, and then coming behind are the hackers. Why? That's how we build out our offensive capability. A zero-day exploit is like having a Tomahawk missile in your arsenal. It's an offensive move, not a defensive move. Well, it could be either, but usually it's an offensive move. Absolutely. So there was a legend going around during the Gulf War. This turned out it wasn't true, but everybody thought it was. And the rumor was that the SEALs had worked with NSA and put a virus into a chip, into a printer, and then sold the printer to Iraq. And then when they hooked the printer up to the network, it took down the radar systems. Now, this, as far as I know, this is an urban legend. It's never been proved. But that's exactly the kind of thing you're going to see in the next real war. And so if you have these zero days, they're a weapon that nobody knows about. Interesting. Okay. So the Stuxnet virus was, I think Israel has actually claimed responsibility for this. And if they haven't, I'm sure it's them anyway. But Israel reportedly manufactured a virus that destroyed uranium centrifuges in Iran this is like the most masterful hack of all time up until the solar winds hack, which apparently is more technical and more intricate. If I understand this correctly, it was a type of virus that actually did absolutely nothing to anything until it found these centrifuges, right? That's exactly what it did. And then what it did is it, it kind of like, if you've ever had a really nice sports car that you got to drive and then you let someone else drive it and then they shift it like in the wrong gear and everybody in the car like kind of makes that face. That's what it did to the centrifuge. It just like kept, and then the centrifuges like literally blew up, but it was like laser targeted. They propagated it through, I think a music system or a download on the music system. Some guy who worked at the centrifuge facility downloaded it, somehow plugged it in somewhere where he worked at, you know, sometime later, 
And then the virus hop, hop, hopped around the network. And it was after it was a specific kind of equipment. It was a Siemens company centrifuge. And when it found it was in one of those, it went to work. It was laser targeted. With all these countries having such sophistication, is this the, the new mutual assured annihilation? Is this kind of like a nuclear war where people are holding off doing the worst to each other? Or is what we're seeing basically the most sophisticated and dangerous hacks so far? The stuff in the arsenal is probably an order of magnitude or two orders of magnitude more devastating. So one of the problems here is that we don't have, as far as I know, no, we don't. We don't have any public or official treaty that defines what the boundaries of warfare in cyberspace are. There's been a lot of talks about it. I know they've drafted some treaties. I'm not sure what the legal status is, but I don't think it's legitimate. So the the problem is each country has to decide for itself what is, in fact, an act of war. I've listened to U.S. policy experts in the government and the way they they say this, they say, look, we, we have no hard and fast guidelines, but their rule of thumb is what they call kinetic escalation. So kinetic escalation is real world problems. So if you hack a computer and you destroy all the data, that's not an act of war. If you hack a computer and it shuts off all the intensive care beds or it makes a a dam open up and floods and kills thousands of people or it blows up the power grid, that term is what's called kinetic escalation. And that is considered to be an act of war. So then the question is, do this is the problem I imagine President Biden's dealing with now. What do you do when you've been hacked? Do you throw missiles at them? Do you do something equivalent? It certainly sounds to the American people like there are no ramifications to messing with our elections, the solar winds hack, messing around with the pipeline. We've heard a lot about these hacks. We just haven't heard a lot of retaliation on our part. Or maybe it's happening and we just don't hear about it. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, if you ever read like John le Carre books about the Cold War and all that, I mean, there was a lot of this kind of stuff. It wasn't cyber It was like, you kill my spy, I'll kill your spy. It was all this sub rosa under the table stuff. Presumably, there's a lot of this going on right now. There is. I mean, even the governments admit it. There is cyber retaliation that they take that they don't make public. The U.S. government has admitted in the past that they have put software devices into the Russian power grid. They publicly acknowledge that. But if they've admitted that, there's probably a million things they haven't admitted. Well, I think the Biden administration even said that they're going to retaliate against Russia for the hack of the election, but they're not going to say what it is. It could be financial sanctions, too. That's what Obama did. So let's say you're Biden and somebody hacks like like the solar wind hacks. What do you do? I mean, you don't launch a missile attack against Moscow. You don't kill a human intelligence agent. I would assume the appropriate response would be something in kind. So I would assume you would take down, you know, hack all of their computers, take down their power grid. That's what I would assume would happen. And then we would read about it and then we would guess it was the U.S. We're doing a lot of guessing here as to what we think would be. It's possible we actually don't have the capabilities that we think we do. The U.S. government does have that capability and they have done it. I was an advisor to the Air Force at one point. We, we absolutely do have the capability. The, the question is, will we use it? Have we used it? And under what conditions would we use it again? 
Because the only thing that has prevented a nuclear holocaust that devastates our whole planet is the idea that it's mutually assured destruction. Is that our best defense here? So why wouldn't Putin take out the DC metro system tomorrow morning and just screw up all the traffic? Because we're going to do that to Moscow, and he knows that. There's no other ramifications against him. The only other thing we could do is lock up his personal bank accounts. There isn't a lot we can do here. It's not a kinetic situation. If Putin invades the Ukraine again, then we could potentially put troops on the ground, airplanes overhead, or we could fight a surrogate war like we've been doing in Syria and other places. The mutually assured destruction scenario is what I'm describing as kinetic. When it gets to the real world where people start dying and things start exploding, then all bets are off and that's a full-scale escalation. I don't think anybody wants that. So I want to quote you from the other day. You said, with systematic attacks on supply chains, critical infrastructure, it only takes one misstep to produce a catastrophic collateral damage or real human casualties. It it will happen. It's kind of an interesting analogy because, you know, back in the Cold War era, we've heard stories in the last 20 years now about how close we actually came to destruction. There was a fail-safe plane that almost didn't turn back. There was a printer that jammed. There was a a Russian guy, a Soviet guy. Have you heard about this, Jane? No, I I watched the documentary. There was a Soviet guy who basically stopped uh, World War III because there was an air showing a missile going into Russia, and he judged that it was an air and not the real thing. But it was a lot of pressure on him. Sounds like a good movie. He unilaterally chose not to launch a missile against the United States. We're moving into the same scenario. Except this time, everything's digital, right? I was on Clinton's Y2K committee representing the internet. It was a task force committee thing 20 years ago. But the thing that came out of it is even back then, how incredibly vulnerable the United States infrastructure was to this kind of stuff. And that was 20 years ago. And they have not, to my knowledge, excessively hardened the infrastructure. As we wrap up, because we're running out of time on this episode, as we wrap this up, I want to give you a quote that came from World Politics Review. They said, despite wave after wave of Russian-sponsored cyber attacks on the U.S. and its allies, Washington still apparently lacks the political will to defend against this Russian aggression. That's a great quote, because what you just said wasn't means, it was political will. That's the concern. The whole thing about the mutually assured destruction in the nuclear arsenals is there was a process where people were trained to react a certain way to a certain threat. If somebody set off a nuclear weapon, there was just kind of an undeniable process that everybody would go through and our world would change as we know it. Here, there's a political will issue, and perhaps we need to practice and train and have policies that are somewhat more predictable? There's one other factor in that, Bill. Power is in part perception. And you're at the peak of your power when you don't have to take action because the perception is that you're that powerful. So there's a balancing act between how much power you then exercise in response of an attack and how much you don't. One of the reasons mutually assured destruction worked to avert a Cold War was because of transparency. Nothing was hidden. Everybody knew exactly what the triggers were. If Soviet Union or the United States aggressed in a certain manner, they knew there would be retribution because they had been told there would be retribution. That has not happened in the cyber world yet. That's probably the next step. 
So the next step would be for the White House or somebody to say, we now consider this an act of war. Or if you do this, we will do this. You have to say it and then you have to do it. Israel basically does that. So we have not done that. That statement would be a powerful statement. And then you go to a peace treaty somewhere like in Vienna or Iceland, and then everybody sits down for three months at a table and they come out with, and I'm sure this is going to happen. There's going to be a start talk or a salt talk, and they're going to come out with, it's going to be the, the cart talk. You know, it'll be a cyber thing. And that document will basically define the rules of the road. In the intelligence agencies, we used to call this rules of engagement. And the people who have to deal with this now are the drone guys, because the drone guys are like right on the edge of being at a war. And they've been given very explicit rules of engagement. So when they blow somebody up in a car, you can bet that a lot of other people signed off on that. All of that being said, I'm looking forward to that three-month sit-down you just described where we come out of it with an understanding worldwide and get this thing under control. All we've succeeded in doing, frankly, is uh, making me have to go home and change my pants. That's it for part one of our hack show. David, thank you. Uh, how do people follow you if they want to know more about this stuff? I have a website at globalpov.com. G-L-O-B-A-L-P-O-V is in Victor. I am on Twitter at the Global POV. Jane, of course, thank you as well. The producer and editor for Meet Me in the Middle is Joey Salvia. Music for the show is composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. Executive producer is Stuart Halpern. And we'll be back next week with part two of Hacked, where we're going to talk to David about cyber risks for each of us personally and exposures at the company level. We'll see you next week, everybody. Don't forget to hit the follow button. And... Don't click on any strange emails. It will be okay. From Kirko Media, media for your mind.